Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 267. Today's topic is first things first. In other words, let's get our priorities straight. In other words, let's not confuse high priorities with medium priorities. There's a lot of confusion today about what are our top priorities and what are our medium priorities. And if we neglect the top priorities and charge forward on the medium priorities, we're going to regret that. We don't want to be 10 years down the road and look back and say, wow, we were listening to all the wrong people. We were believing all the wrong people. We were trusting all the wrong people who were trying to sell us something instead of pointing us towards real solutions. So let's read a few words from Biden's climate plan because, well, Biden is our fearless leader at this point, apparently. Let's read a few words from Biden's climate plan and that will set the stage for further comments. So I'm reading from Biden's climate plan. Biden's day one unprecedented executive actions to drive historic progress. So these are the actions that Biden says he's going to take on the first day. On day one, Biden will use the full authority of the executive branch to make progress and significantly reduce emissions. Biden recognizes we must go further, faster, and more aggressively than ever before by requiring aggressive methane pollution limits for new new and existing oil and gas operations, using the federal government procurement system which spends $500 billion every year to drive towards 100% clean energy and zero emissions vehicles, ensuring that all U.S. government installations, buildings, and facilities are more efficient and climate-ready, harnessing the purchasing power and supply chains to drive innovation, reducing greenhouse gas emissions from transportation, the fastest-growing source of U.S. climate pollution, by preserving and implementing the existing Clean Air Act and developing rigorous new fuel economy standards aimed at ensuring 100% of new sales for light and medium-duty vehicles will be electrified and annual improvements for heavy-duty vehicles. Doubling down, we will double down on the liquid fuels of the future, which make agriculture a key part of the solution to climate change. Advanced biofuels are now closer than ever uh, as we begin to build the first plants for biofuels, creating jobs and new solutions to reduce emissions in planes, ocean-going vessels, and more. Saving consumers money and reducing emissions. In other words, we will save consumers money and reduce emissions through new, aggressive appliance and building efficiency standards. In other words, we're going to focus on efficiency of appliances and buildings. We will commit that every federal infrastructure investment should reduce climate pollution and require any federal permitting decision to consider the effects of greenhouse gas emissions and climate change. We will require public companies to disclose climate risks and the greenhouse gas emissions in their operations and supply chains. 
we will protect biodiversity, slowing extinction rates, and helping leverage natural climate solutions by conserving 30% of America's lands and waters by 2030. We will protect America's natural treasures permanently, protecting the Arctic National Wildlife Reserve and other areas impacted by President Trump's attack on federal lands and waters, establishing national parks and monuments that reflect America's natural heritage, banning new oil and gas permitting on public lands and waters, modifying royalties to account for climate costs, and establishing targeted programs to enhance reforestation and develop renewables on federal lands and waters with the goal of doubling offshore wind by 2030. So those are the executive orders that Biden says he's going to sign on day one. And then you have Biden's year one legislative agenda on climate change. Establish an enforcement mechanism to achieve net zero emissions no later than 2050, including a target no later than the end of Biden's first term in 2025 to ensure we get to the finish line. This, this enforcement mechanism will be based on the principles that polluters must bear the full cost of carbon pollution they are emitting and that our economy must achieve ambitious reductions in emissions economy-wide instead of having just a few sectors carry the burden of change. The enforcement mechanism will achieve clear, legally binding emissions reductions with environmental integrity. So what I've just read you here from Biden's climate plan is a combination of good ideas and bad ideas. As far as the good ideas, you know, okay, fine. You say you're going to establish aggressive methane pollution limits. I really doubt that you're committed to that. You, know, you can always make an excuse that Mitch McConnell got in the way. You can always make the excuse that Republicans pushed back too hard. You say you're going to use the federal government procurement system to buy zero emissions vehicles. And I think that's kind of not a great idea because it's pork barrel for people that are selling zero emissions vehicles. I don't think zero emissions vehicle, I don't think there's any such thing as a zero emissions vehicle because they all take carbon, at least they all take fossil fuels at least in the production process, and they all require mining of dirty metals. And I'm not saying we shouldn't do any electric vehicles or any solar or any wind. I'm just saying if we think all that stuff is clean, we've got another thing coming. So that's why I'm saying we shouldn't, we need to, we need to do first things first. We need to get our priorities straight. We need to not take medium priority things like electric vehicles and solar power and wind power and elevate them to high priority things, meanwhile neglecting the really low hanging fruit, neglecting those things that would be high impact, easy and quick to implement. And I'll get to some of those, but it includes you know, a moratorium on deforestation, especially on public lands. No more deforestation a decisive shift to regenerative agriculture. Regenerative agriculture produces more food than this monstrosity that is industrial agriculture. 
uh, reduced defense by 90%, by 90%, reduced defense by 90%, because defense has never defended us. It's never been about defense. It's always been about making money. So we'll get to more of those, but I have a few other things that I want to take issue with before we get into that. And here's a bad idea, doubling down on liquid fuels of the future. So liquid fuels, that means, um, that means corn ethanol, it means sugar ethanol, it means biomass, chewing up forests, uh, you know, liquid fuels of the future, which make agriculture a key part of the solution to climate change. He's talking about advanced biofuels. There's nothing ecological about advanced biofuels. Advanced biofuels is just another pork barrel deal where you, you, know, where you subsidize the people that are selling advanced biofuels. So you have a lot of, you have a few people making a lot of money. You might create a few jobs here and there, but not nearly as many jobs as would, would be created if we would make a decisive shift toward regenerative agriculture. Biofuels are a bad idea. It says here in Biden's climate plan, we're going to commit that every federal infrastructure investment should reduce climate pollution. And that's going to happen irrespective of whether we are moving towards so-called green, clean, renewable energy or not. All this green, clean, renewable energy is not as green, not as clean, not as renewable as it's supposed to be. I mean, look at you know the metals that you have to put into uh, solar panels. There's only so much of that. And the, the scarcer a metal gets, the more you have to tear up the ground to find it. Lithium is not renewable. We don't want to get to a place, we don't want to get, you know, 20 years down the road and look back and say, you know, we sure did chew up a lot of land and pollute a lot of water to extract lithium from the ground so we could make solar panels. Maybe it would have been better instead of feeling like we have to always uh, consume more and more and more and more energy. Maybe it would be best for us to consume less energy. And we can consume less energy without any negative impact on the well-being of individuals. Consuming less energy doesn't mean you and I have to live an austere life. It does mean the plutocrats need to go on a diet. It does mean that the industries that the plutocrats thrive on need to go away or be reduced by 90%. You know, the, the defense, defense, the Pentagon, uh, which doesn't defend us, needs to go away to the tune of 90% because it's consuming a ton of energy and it doesn't do anything for you and me. Corporate media, i.e. corporate propaganda, needs to go away to the tune of 90%. You know, these PR executives have to drive to work. So, the you know, if, if they're crafting propaganda so that we can be fooled and deceived, then all of the energy that goes into their their transportation, their clothing, their food, all that is wasted because, you know, what are we going to do? Put solar panels on the buildings that have the PR executives and the corporate lawyers that go to work every day and figure out how to screw the people of America and the people of the world. I'm not saying they're bad people. I'm saying they're caught up in a system that is using their talents, using their time, using their ingenuity, to, uh, to harm people, to harm nature, and to harm our democratic institutions. 
So it says here in Biden's climate plan, we're going to ensure that all U.S. government installations, buildings, and facilities are more efficient and climate ready, harnessing the purchasing power and supply chains to drive innovation. Okay, that sounds like a good idea, but what buildings are we talking about and what is meant by innovation? First, let's talk about the buildings that, were, that are, are going to be more efficient and climate ready. Are we going to take the Pentagon and make it more efficient and climate ready? It'd be better to shut down the Pentagon or at least reduce it by 90%. Are we going to take the CIA and make it more efficient and climate ready? It'd be better to defund the CIA or reduce it by 90%. I mean, this is an organization that generates a lot of carbon pollution going all over the world, uh, you know, causing regime, regime change. They, that's what the CIA does. They do regime change. They, do, um, they dr deal in drugs. They deal in guns. The CIA is organized crime. And if you don't believe that, think about this. If they're not doing criminal activities, then why is all of it secret? They're not protecting. They don't keep these things secret to protect themselves from foreign enemies. They keep these things secret to protect themselves from the American public. They keep these things secret to protect themselves from you and me. The CIA is an illegitimate organization. If it's not shut down entirely, it needs to be reduced by 90%. In the meantime, let's not focus on putting solar panels on the CIA building. That's why I say, you know, step number one is the, the low-hanging fruit. Step number one is to get rid of half of our economic activity, half of our economy. And that's scary to some people because they have been indoctrinated into the false notion that the economy is the source of all of our well-being. But the, the economy, such as it is, is the source of much of what ails us. The, the economic activity needs to be shut down, and uh, half of it anyway. We can shut down half of our economic activity if we understand that we can take care of people even while we shut down half of the economy. And proof of that is, you know, look at what they did with the CARES Act. The CARES Act, they threw a lot of money at Wall Street. I heard the other day that, you know, some of the CARES Act money is going to fossil fuel companies. Some of the CARES Act money is going to airlines. Some of the CARES Act money is going to cruise ship companies. Why are we spending, you know, that's basically subsidizing the worst polluters in the world subsidizing a few people, uh, subsidizing a few plutocrats, why are we doing that? That's why I say we could shut down half of our economic activity. So, you know, how would you like half of your time back? How would you like lots of free time? The way to do that is to give everybody a universal basic income so that we don't have to slave away for the worst companies in the world. So I'm saying that the low-hanging fruit is to eliminate half of the economic activity. And the way we eliminate half of our economic activity is to identify industries that need to mostly go away. 
and look at activities and policies that need to be entirely eliminated. If we look at activities and policies that need to go away, then we will eliminate half the economy and we will be eliminating half of that economy that is harming people. So if you think about what does environmentalism mean, or the popular conception of environmentalism, and if you look at what environmentalists, supposedly so-called environmentalists, are always pushing, you think the first thing that comes to mind is solar panels. The second thing that comes to mind is electric cars. I'm saying those things are not the low-hanging fruit. I'm saying those things are not the high priority. I'm saying if we do first things first, we will... Uh, you know, make changes that can be made much more easily and with much less of a carbon footprint and much less of an ecological footprint. In fact, all the changes I'm going to be suggest are I'm going to suggest are changes that will pay us dividends ecologically and pay us dividends in terms of money and pay us dividends in terms of free time. Let's get some free time going. So let's say I'm talking to Michael Bloomberg. So you know Michael Bloomberg, former mayor of New York. Uh, he was a Democratic candidate for president in the primary. He's, um, he's a billionaire, and he has a media organization, and he claims to be on the side of clean and renewable energy. So let's just say it's me and Michael Bloomberg talking about what we're going to do. And Michael Bloomberg, with his friends Bill McKibben and Al Gore, are going to be, they want to say, you know, solar panels, biofuels, electric cars, lots and lots and lots of innovations. And I'm saying, no, we're not going to do that just yet. I need you to assure me that you are willing to go for innovations that are cheap or free or pay, uh, that, that many of them are cheap, many of them are free, many of them pay immediate div dividends ecologically, many of them pay immediate dividends financially, and many of them pay immediate dividends in terms of freeing up our time, our brain power, our energy for things that we really need to do. So, I have 10 items here. There's no way I'm going to get through all 10, but let, let me just name them and then I'll come back to the top. So, number one, a moratorium on deforestation. Number two, a decisive shift toward regenerative agriculture. Number three, uh, change highway spending. Reverse the 100 to ratio of spending dedicated to highways. In other words, on a, at a ratio of 100 to 1, we spend money on expanding highways for automobiles instead of instead building infrastructure for trains and buses. Number four, reduce defense by 90%. Reduce defense by 90%. Number five, end the prison industrial complex. Number six, universal basic income and Medicare for all so people can live easier and drive less and eat less fast food. Number seven, no patents on drugs developed at public expense. People in America are being bankrupted by pay, having to pay for drugs that were developed at taxpayer expense. And then they have to pay exorbitant prices because private pharmaceutical companies have them patented. Number eight, no fracking on public lands. Just say no to fracking on public lands. 
Uh, Biden could do that with the stroke of a pen. And he, he gives lip service to it in, the clim- in Biden's climate plan. I just don't think he's going to do it. He's, you know, he's, he's going to end new fracking wells. Well, end them all. Fracking is horrible. Fracking is completely unjustifiable. Uh, number nine, no deforestation on public lands. So up the top, we said we're going to end deforestation. Uh, num- and now no deforestation on public lands. Just say no to deforestation on public lands. And number 10, no cattle on public lands. You know, cattle are a disaster on public lands. Uh, cattle are, are not a disaster uh, in the eastern half of the United States where it's wet, but cattle are a disaster in the dry areas of, uh, of the West where they're, they're, they're an invasive species they cause ecological disaster out there. So these are 10 items and they're in no particular order. This is by no means a complete or comprehensive list. This is not even a representative list of the thing, but, but this is just scratching the surface or to use another metaphor, this is just the tip of the iceberg of the things that can be done and should be done that are much cheaper and quicker and easier than trying to churn out a bunch of solar panels and windmills and electric cars which have their own set of side effects and are not clean energy. There is no such thing as clean energy. The only clean energy is when you go for a walk or when you ride a bike. Um, there, there Actually, there is clean energy, but when they talk about clean and renewable energy, it's not solar panels, it's not windmills, it's not electric cars, it's not this supposedly smart grid that they want to put in place, this smart electrical grid. So let's go back to the top. Number one, so, so these are the changes that we want to make. And the reason we want to make these changes is that these are the changes that are quick, cheap, and easy, and therefore should be a high priority. So item number one in the list of things that are quick, cheap, easy, and pay big dividends is a moratorium on deforestation. We have private for-profit companies going into our public lands and harvesting timber. They pay us a song for it and they make off with the profits. It's very corrupt. It's ecologically catastrophic. It removes the best trees from the forest. They have to make roads to go get the trees. Uh, Roads themselves, we need to minimize our roads. We need to make less, so I would say, you know, no new roads, and that would be part of this. No new roads. There's no reason for us to have new roads. We have enough roads. So we want to do a moratorium on deforestation, partly because When trees grow, they absorb carbon. So trees and grasslands can provide wonderful ecological services if we allow them to grow and if we allow them to absorb carbon. But we're not allowing them to do that as long as we are deforesting at a breakneck pace. You know, the entire continental United States has been deforested almost, but much of it grew back. And some of of the times when you look at a forest, you're only seeing trees that are maybe 40 or 50 years old. Some of them are 100 years old. There are not very many forests that are older than that. 
most of them are, are not even older than 50 years old. But we need to leave alone the trees that we have. And, you know, there was a time when you might have been able to get away with making fun of a person for being a tree hugger. But we are in an ecological collapse. Climate change is only one symptom of this problem called ecological collapse. Another symptom of the problem called ecological collapse is, is what, what's called you know, the loss of biodiversity or the sixth great extinction or the sixth mass extinction or this extinction event. We are losing species at about a thousand times the natural rate, somewhere between a hundred and a thousand times the natural rate. We don't know exactly because it needs to be studied more closely, but it's, you know, you can, some, if it, even if it's only a hundred times the natural rate, that is a, a catastrophic event. The last time we had an extinction like this was 65 million years ago when the dinosaurs went extinct. There have been so far uh, five mass extinction events in the history of the earth. Nothing bigger than a squirrel survives a mass extinction. We need to stop this process of mass extinction. And one way to do that is item number one on my handy dandy list of things that are quick, easy, cheap, and pay big dividends. Item number one is a moratorium on deforestation, especially on public lands. We need to stop cutting trees. We need to plant trees, uh, more trees, and we need to plant a diversity, a biological diversity of trees. Whenever you have tree plantations, that's farming, that's agribusiness, that's not what I'm talking about. And unfortunately, some of these big industrial tree farms get included in the figures that say, oh, look how many trees have been planted, look how many trees have been growing. These monoculture industrial tree farms are not going to support biodiversity, and they're not going to absorb carbon for very long because those trees are going to be cut down just in a matter of time. So we need a moratorium on deforestation. So let me give you a taste of industrialized deforestation. I'm going to read a passage from a book called This Land by Christopher Ketchum. I highly recommend this book. So we're out in the American West. These are public lands, and this is how they clear land to make way for a few wealthy cattle interests to make money. A machine called a bull hog is approaching. Its engine roars. It runs on treads like a bulldozer and is affixed at its front is a spinning bladed cylinder. It has only one and only one use, the destruction of the forest in which I stand. A forest of pinyon and juniper that the BLM, Bureau of Land Management, manages on our behalf. These are ancient trees, gnarled with age, short and squat with fattened trunks and curling bark, maybe 20 feet at their crowns. A pygmy forest derisively called a woodland and found on tens of millions of acres in Utah and Nevada. 
So I don't have time to finish this passage, maybe next time, but it, it, it describes just a horrific scene where this piece of heavy equipment is just chewing up old forest just for the heck of it and just for the benefit of the very few. So I say, before you want to sell me a solar panel, join with me to say no more deforestation on public lands. Join with me to take these things like a bull hog and reduce their manufacture by 90%, if not completely eliminate these things. Deforestation, I mean, ending deforestation is cheap, it's free, it pays big dividends. It pays dividends ecologically, and it pays dividends in terms of uh, the uh, amount of money that could be saved if we stop this kind of senseless, useless deforestation. That's all the time we have. Thank you for joining me. Hope you come back soon. Welcome to the Climate Report. This is Hart Hagen, your host, and we are on episode number 268. Today's topic is, it's the biosphere, stupid. So back in the 1992 election for president, Bill Clinton famously said, it's the economy, stupid. So this is a takeoff on the, it's the biosphere, stupid. And the biosphere as opposed to what? So the purpose of the Climate Report is to try to solve the problem of climate change. And everybody, nearly everybody knows that climate is an issue, but there's lots of confusion and misunderstanding about climate. I would say climate change is a symptom. We're not going to solve the problem of climate change by narrowly focusing on the problem of climate change. The only way we're going to solve the problem of climate change is by understanding the root causes and understanding the related problems that are also emerging from the root causes. So the, the root cause has to do with how we are governed. The root cause is our political and economic system. The root cause has to do with the fact that we live in a plutocracy, not a democracy. A plutocracy is where money runs the show. A democracy is one person, one vote, where you get to vote on that which affects you. A plutocracy, on the other hand, is when people who don't have very much money don't have very much power or control. It is only the people who have a lot of money that have power and control in a plutocratic system. So I would say the underlying cause of climate change is the plutocracy. Some people say it's capitalism, and I have a lot of sympathy with that viewpoint, but I think plutocracy is a more precise and accurate term. I don't think small-scale capitalism is a problem. Uh, I think it's, it, it, it's large-scale capitalism. Like small businesses, small farms, small local restaurants are not really the problem. The problem is when our entire 
uh, economic system and political system is run by those who have most of the money. And the people that have most of the money are called plutocrats, and it's the plutocracy that I say is the root problem. If you try to solve climate change without addressing the problem of plutocracy, you will fail miserably. We will fail miserably if we don't address the issue of plutocracy. Plutocracy is the golden rule. Whoever has the gold makes the rules, and that's the problem that we need to solve. Otherwise, we will never be able to solve um, the, the problem of climate change. Climate change is a symptom of an economic system that wants to make infinite use of finite resources. It's logically impossible to make infinite use of finite resources. And when you hear terms like green capitalism, the fallacy there is that, you know, capitalism, a.k.a. plutocracy, is what has caused this problem to begin with. So, you know, is industrial civilization going to solve the problems created by industrial civilization? And the people that are going to mislead and misinform us are, sadly, environmentalists. Environmentalists are people who claim to be environmentalists but want to make money in the process. And I'm not saying it's a problem to be a small-scale solar panel installer. I don't really think that's a problem. But the problem is when the means of communication like the, you know, the big media, the corporate media, the big newspapers, are owned by the same people who want to profit from supposedly providing a solution to climate change. So when I say, uh, so the title of this episode is, it's the biosphere, stupid. So the idea is that, you, you know, we've got our blinders on if we want to solve the climate problem without looking at the larger biosphere. Climate is not, but by biosphere, I mean, biosphere is just a fancy term for, you know, take all the ecosystems and put them together and you've got the biosphere. Biosphere is that part of the globe that represents living things. Biosphere includes the air, the water, and things, and the earth, and things that you know, plants and animals and fungi and microorganisms need to live. But somehow solving the problem of climate change has resulted in, okay, let's just look at climate and let's just look at carbon. Uh, you know, I know somebody who traveled to Australia on a plane because she, I'm sure, put it in her handy-dandy carbon calculator and said, oh, I can afford this on my carbon budget. But, you know, carbon is not nature. That, that plane and the jet fuel and the airports have a much bigger impact on the biosphere, and it's not just about carbon. If I were an evil genius trying to do in the human race, I would get people to narrowly focus on carbon. I would get people to narrowly focus on climate and neglect nature. I would get people to narrowly focus on carbon and neglect our ecosystems. I would get you know, a few con artists to sell people lots and lots of stuff as if we're going to shop our way 
to out of this crisis. But like Naomi Klein says, we're not going to shop our way out of this crisis. There are not enough solar panels in the world, or there will never be enough solar panels to compensate for what we're doing to the biosphere. So if I were that evil genius wanting to destroy humanity and most life on Earth, I would get humans to narrowly focus on carbon and neglect what they're doing to the biosphere. So let me read you something. I started to read this on a previous episode. It's from This Land by Christopher Ketchum. It's an excellent book, excellent book. Uh, I have the Kindle and the audio, and it's one of the most well-read audio books I've ever uh, listen to. The author himself reads it. He does a fabulous job. It, this land, it's how cowboys, capitalism, and corruption are ruining the American West. So let's go out West for just a moment and let's look at what heavy equipment is doing to the biosphere. So we've been talking about the biosphere. We've been saying that we can't just narrowly focus on climate. We have to pay attention to our ecosystems and the biosphere. And I'm saying that as part of that, we need to end deforestation. And I mean end deforestation. So we can speculate as to how grave of a crisis we are in. All the scientists say we're in a very grave crisis. But no matter whether the end is 10 years from now or 30 years from now or 100 years from now, we should all be able to agree that we should be willing and able to make changes that are quick and easy and pay big dividends in terms of time and freeing up money and freeing up expertise. So if we stop deforestation, we will be freeing up time, freeing up money, and freeing up expertise. But let me tell you a story about a particularly egregious example of deforestation. So Christopher Ketchum is out west, and he's going to tell us a story about a bull hog, a piece of heavy equipment that's going to chew up this forest. He says, a machine called a bull hog is approaching. Its engine roars. It runs on treads like a bulldozer, and affixed to its front is a spinning bladed cylinder. It has one use and one use only the destruction of the forest in which I stand. So what's the forest made of? The forest is made of pinyon and juniper, two types of trees, pinyon and juniper that the BLM, Bureau of Land Management, manages on our behalf. So these are public lands. These are our lands. They are no less our lands than the people who live out west. So Christopher Ketchum goes on to say, these are ancient trees gnarled with age, short and squat, with fattened trunks and curling bark, maybe 20 feet at their crowns, a pygmy forest that is derisively called a woodland. And it's found on tens of millions of acres in Utah and Nevada. Christopher Ketchum goes on to say, the bull hog operated and funded by the Department of the Interior at our expense, with our tax dollars, charges through the forest as I stand in a kind of fugue, incredulous at the pace 
of its destruction. So Christopher Ketchum is just marveling at how quickly this machine called a bullhog can destroy the forest. He says, the beautiful old gnarled trees are devoured up in the mouth of the mobile mulcher, knocking, knocked down and chewed up, defecated at its ass end in fragments. The howl and whine of the engine and the spinning blades, the torturous toppling of the trees, the crackling and crushing of trunks and limbs, the shattered spitting out of beings alive seconds before. So these beings were alive only seconds before and at an incredible pace, an incredible rate. This piece of heavy equipment literally chews up the trees and spits them out. Christopher says, it's almost too much to bear. What's left is a flattened, denuded, tread-smashed wasteland, a bombed Dresden of pinion juniper. So he's comparing this to Dresden, the Eastern European city that was bombed to smithereens by the Allies in World War II. This uh, piece of equipment called a bullhog is going to make this forest into a moonscape. It's going to chew up every living thing in this forest, at least uh, every living thing above ground. So Christopher says this is happening, or is planned to happen, in an area roughly the size of Vermont. So here we are. Here we are on planet Earth. Everybody's talking about climate change, and people want to sell you solar panels and windmills, and there, some of that is okay, but meanwhile, we're chewing up forests. Now, this is problematic from a climate standpoint. This is, this is problematic strictly from the standpoint of carbon, because when you chew up these trees and spit them out, then the carbon starts to break down and it releases carbon into the atmosphere. Plus, when the soils become depleted, they release carbon into the atmosphere. Plus, all of the habitat is gone. Uh, you know, birds, butterflies, bees that might otherwise live in this forest of pinyon and juniper is going to, uh, there, there's no longer any habitat anymore for these things because grazing cattle is more important even when it's at public expense, even when the purpose of this is to enrich a very few cattle ranchers at the expense of everybody else. Now, you and I are paying for this bullhog. Uh, plus, this bullhog, let's look at the supply chain associated with a bullhog. It's a big piece of heavy equipment. It's got these treads. It's got lots of iron and steel. It uses lots of fuel. <clears throat> Just the manufacture of a piece of equipment like this is, is, terribly, is a terribly polluting process. If you could trace this back to the factories where the thing is assembled, there's a lot of pollution there. There's a lot of carbon uh, being spewed into the atmosphere, and there's a lot of you know things being gone. There's a lot of pollution going into the water. Trace that back to the places where. So the parts of this bullhog are made, I'm sure, all over the world, uh, and so you know trace 
the supply chain back to the factories where the parts are made and there's a lot of uh, pollution, carbon pollution, um, water pollution, air pollution associated with the manufacture of the parts of the bull hog. Trace it back to the places where the metals are mined and there's a lot of um, you know, water pollution associated with mining. Uh, mining is a dangerous job. People get sick uh, from mining. People die from injury on jobs that are mining. Uh, all of this to make a machine whose sole purpose is to chew up a forest and spit it out. Now do you see why I say job number one is to stop doing about half of what we're doing in our economy? Most of our economy, I would assert that most of our economy is similarly ridiculous if you look at it. So the low-hanging fruit is not to the low-hanging fruit is not to make a bunch of solar panels, which is also a polluting process, and it's not entirely clean energy. It, it's not entirely renewable energy because these solar panels are made of metals, and metals are not renewable. The manufacture of solar panels takes a lot of fossil fuels, and the fossil fuels are not renewable. We need to do some solar power. We need to slowly, gradually advance in solar power technology. But if we're going full steam ahead with solar panels and we're not calling for an absolute end to the insanity and the stupidity of this type of deforestation, then we simply do not have our priorities together and we're probably being fooled and duped by people who just want to sell us something. You know, and I'm sure that some people within the sound of my voice own stock in the, in the company that manufactures the bull hog. So partly your retirement is based on this type of ridiculousness. Your retirement is partly based on this type of destruction. Your retirement is based partly on this type of pollution. Let's get rid of that and let's give people a universal basic income so they don't have to associate their personal financial security with the, uh, with the hot mess that is Wall Street. So the whole purpose, you know, what I've been hammering away at episode after episode after episode is we need to get our priorities in line we need to not just talk about doing something about climate, but we need, to, uh, we need to be caring for the biosphere. So when somebody wants to sell you a solar panel or convince you that we could have all this more energy from wind energy or convince you to get an electric car or convince you to get a certain amount of your utility electricity from renewable sources. We need to be asking such people, what is the big plan? What is the overall plan and what are the principles that are involved? And I have my handy dandy list of Hart's uh, climate principles. There are six of them currently. 
And principle number three is care and freedom, not production and consumption, should define our economy. So care and freedom. Caring for the forest instead of chewing up the forest. Production and consumption, if we have an economy that's based on production and consumption, then if you chew up a forest and spit it out, then that's okay as long as it adds to GDP. But you're attacking the biosphere. You're raping the land. You're raping the forest. And we need to care for the biosphere that we have. We need to care for the forests that we have. That's why I say no more deforestation, or at least reduce deforestation by 90%. And when I say we can and should eliminate half of our economic activity. Some people say, how do you eliminate half of our economic activity? That eliminates half the economy and we're going to be twice as poor. And my response is, you think that because you've been conditioned to associate human well-being with the size of the economy. You've been conditioned to associate the health and well-being of our economy with the gross domestic product. You know, the gross domestic product is like, okay, that forest that the bullhog chewed up, that forest contributes little or nothing to gross domestic product, except when you cut it down and put cattle on it and sell the cattle. So that's stupid. Gross domestic product does not take into account the value of the forest before you chewed it up. Gross domestic product does not take into account the, um, let's say there's flooding downstream from this, because if you chew up a forest, there's going to be more flooding downstream. So, you know, there's going to be flooding downstream and the FEMA is going to come in and, and the insurance companies are going to pay their claims. And that adds to gross domestic product. But do we want to add to gross domestic product because we are cleaning up a mess that shouldn't have occurred to begin with. So that's why I say care and freedom and not production and consumption should define our economy. So care means caring for the forest. Care means caring for people. Care means doing what people really need. And the plutocracy rarely is attentive to what people really need. Capital rarely cares about what people really need. But we've got an economy that's rooted entirely in production and consumption. It doesn't need to be that way. We need to stop talking about gross domestic product and we need to start talking about gross domestic happiness. How happy are we? How happy could we be? How much happier would we be if we didn't face the constant threat of medical bills that can put you into bankruptcy? How happy would we be if we had good, strong unions that could represent our interests vis-a-vis capital? How happy would we be even if we had, you know, $5,000 a year in universal basic income, let alone $10,000 or $12,000 a year in universal basic income, which is what Andrew Yang suggested, a $12,000 a year universal basic income. Or if Martin Luther King were living today, uh, he said that we should have a guaranteed annual income that is equal to the poverty level so that with the stroke of a pen, you can end poverty.
He said probably the quickest and most efficient way to end poverty is to pay people. And he said the reason this is important is for one thing, people don't do their best work when they're struggling to survive. People don't do their best work when they're working for slave wages. When people are working for slave wages, they don't contribute very much to society as part of their work. You know, if they go home and they, you know, they're taking care of their family, they're playing music, they're walking in the park, they're uh, removing invasive species, they're planting trees, they're participating in their religious activities. Much of that is more important work than they do when they're earning a paycheck, but they have to earn that paycheck to survive. And the pity of it is, and the tragedy of it is, that we have people going to work, earning their living by advancing the interests of the worst companies in the world. Fast food companies are some of the worst in the world. Agribusiness giants are some of the worst in the world. Fossil fuel companies, you can make great money working for fossil fuel companies sometimes, but look at what they're doing to the world we live in. So we've set up this terrible paradox that says if you want to earn a paycheck, you have to participate in the destruction of the planet. If you want to earn a paycheck, you have to participate in the, uh, you have to participate in the destruction of our climate. If you're going to earn a paycheck, you have to participate in water pollution and air pollution and devastating health effects of the industries that we have. So that's a plutocracy. That's what happens when all the decisions are made by those who want nothing more to do than to earn money. And if you think that's not how our system works, we need to talk. Because legally and financially, corporations are under a mandate to earn a profit, and the bigger, the better. Legally, the chief executive officer of a corporation has no choice but to go to work every day and maximize the profits of that company with the, the climate be damned, the, the biosphere be damned, water pollution, who cares, air pollution, who cares. They have to make a profit, and the CEO personally is often very far removed from the air pollution and the water pollution, and uh, is far removed from the devastating effects of desertification, which is what happens if you chew up our forests and you plow up all the ground and you let erosion uh, carry soil and toxic chemicals into our waterways. The CEO is often far removed from that. So it's just not part of their immediate concerns. Out of sight, out of mind. But that's plutocracy. And it's plutocracy that needs to be dealt with if we're going to solve the climate crisis. All the solar panels in the world will not save us if we don't deal with plutocracy, because we can put up solar panels and still chew up our forests. We can put up our, we can, uh, you know, put up solar panels on this plant that makes the bullhog. How helpful is that? Oh, we have solar panels on our plant. We're making machines that are designed to chew up the forest and spit it out. But if we've got solar panels, we're doing what we need to do for climate, right? 
That's what they want you to think. And unfortunately, a number of environment, you know, there are fake environmentalists and there are real environmentalists. A lot of real environmentalists have been fooled by this nonsense. And a lot of fake environmentalists are just wanting to make money off of selling solar panels while we chew up the forests and while we you know, devastate the planet with the war machine while we devastate the planet. You know, another way of deforestation is, uh, you know, deforestation for agriculture, which is exactly what this bull hog is doing. You're going to chew up the forest so you can put cattle on it. And cattle can be raised sustainably, but not out west where it's dry. Cattle can not only be raised sustainably, but cattle can be an important part of carbon sequestration if you're in a place where cattle are adapted to, which is, includes Kentucky and Virginia and Missouri and Indiana and Ohio and Tennessee. These are places where cattle can be raised sustainably, but 99.9% .9 of the cattle in this world are raised in concentrated animal feeding operations. And so while we're at it, why don't we have windmills and solar panels providing the, the, the power so that uh, concentrated animal feeding operations can keep the lights on. Why don't we have windmills and solar panels uh, power the laptops that executives of agribusiness companies do when they're overseeing their concentrated animal feeding operations? Do you see the irony? Do you see the, the stupidity of all that? Hey, I know. Let's not do that. And if you get nothing else from this episode, I want you to not be fooled by people that are selling gadgets and gizmos and devices. Don't be fooled by people that are selling solar panels and windmills and state-of-the-art electric grids. Because that, my friend, is less than half of the story. Thank you for joining me. Hope you come back soon. Thank you.